0: Good morning again. Um, I should have introduced myself earlier when I was up here. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Nathan Turquie, and I'm one of the pastors here at South Baton Rouge. Uh, and um, glad to have you with us this morning. Well, with the new year, we've started a new uh, a new sermon series on Sunday mornings, uh, and so we're going to be looking at it over the next several weeks. Together, we're going to be looking at uh, a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, the book of Ephesians. And the theme of Ephesians, we said last week, to be maybe summed up like this. Paul is writing to say that life from God necessarily leads to a transformed life with and before God. Uh, and immediately in chapter 1, of Ephesians, Paul gives. A, he he starts telling us about this life that has come to us from God, and so in chapter one, we said this last week. What Paul is doing is he's giving us uh, the story of God's work of salvation from God's perspective, as it were. It's as if he's taking us up on the top of a mountain and he's giving us this incredible breathtaking view of God's uh, work of salvation, this panoramic view that includes being able to see all kinds of things that you would never be able to see from the foot of the mountain from your own perspective. And Paul in chapter one, he just got so caught up in the wonder of this perspective that life comes from God that he just keeps spilling out phrase after phrase as he's Recounting and praising God for all of the blessings that come from Him. And and one thing that's not captured in the English translation of verses 3 to 14, which we're going to read here in a moment uh, in chapter 1, is that in the Greek, it's actually just one long sentence. Uh, One author I read said these verses are structurally complex. Which is a really nice way of saying, is not very good grammar, um, not even in the Greek, uh, but that's Paul. He, it's as if he couldn't contain himself. He's just so caught up in the wonder. And we said last week that Paul gives us this mountaintop perspective by showing us God's work through the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so last week we talked about, uh, we talked primarily about the love of God in verses 4 through 6. And today we're going to read again this one long, beautiful sentence. uh, But we're mainly going to focus this morning on verses 7 through 10 to talk about the blessings that we have in Christ. Um, So if you would follow along with me, I'm going to read for us Ephesians chapter one, verses three to 14, and then I'll pray for us and, uh, and we'll get to talking about this passage. So let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever and ever. Let's go before Him now and ask for His Gracious God and Father, we Come before you and do plead for your help. Um, would you be kind and merciful and gracious to us this morning um, in allowing us to understand your word and have it applied to our lives? Father, would you do this to the praise of your glory, even as we just read? Um, but would you also do it for our good in Jesus? Where it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, Paul, in this passage, he wrote something just really absolutely incredible in verse 3 of this passage. He wrote that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing. The word blessing, I know, is somewhat weak in the English language, but in the Bible, blessing is is really something objective, Um, much closer to the Old Testament and Jewish idea of shalom. Uh, See, it carries with it the idea of not just peace and reconciliation, although certainly that's a part of it, but. It's wholeness. It's total fulfillment and satisfaction. Completeness. It's Shalom is life as it should be. right? To have shalom, to have every spiritual blessing, it's really for you to come home to life as it was meant to be. It's to have the fullness of every joy, Every love and satisfaction that your heart needs, craves, and longs for. And here's what's amazing. In verse 3, Paul wrote, We have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I mean, I hope you caught that when we were reading through. It's in the past tense. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's absolute language. It's language of completion and accomplishment. We already have every blessing in Jesus. And some of you might say today, but, but I don't feel like it. Um, you know, I don't feel like I've come home in this sense. Like I have this wholeness, this deep sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. And I get it. We'll talk about that some, our, our experience of every spiritual blessing. But right out of the gate, Paul says, whether you feel it or not, from the mountaintop, This is the reality that comes into view. God has already blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing. So what are those blessings, you might ask? Uh, Well, Paul, that's why this sentence is as long as it is. is—is because Paul is listing a number of them. He says, you've been chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ. Forgiven in Him. You have the promise that in Christ all things are going to be united and summed up in Him. You've been given the Spirit. Every spiritual blessing is already yours. See, Paul says that is possible because to be a Christian, to be a believer, is to be someone in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, I tried to emphasize it a little bit when I was reading, but that phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved, or in whom, it shows up 11 times in this one sentence. So often that many think that in Christ is really the point of this passage. Um, In fact, many would argue that in Christ isn't just the main point of this passage. But of every single thing Paul ever wrote. Because he uses this phrase 11 times in this passage, but he uses it 160 something times in all of his letters that he wrote. What Paul is talking about here, and this is important, I'm sorry for the long kind of ramp up introduction here, but, but listen what Paul is talking about here is union with Christ. When you become a Christian, you are put in him so that you are united to him in everything he has done for you. So that everything he has is yours because you are united to him. Author Rankin Wilburn, he wrote about a friend of his who was desperately needy. For approval, who uh, was constantly in search of affirmation and acceptance and praise, and often failing to get it. And he tells how this friend got this job at Disneyland uh, in California. And and in having this job, this friend of his kind of had this aha experience and moment. Uh, so, w- what was his friend's job? Um, she was the person inside the Mickey Mouse costume. You know, and when she got inside that costume, inside, when she was in Mickey, right, masses of people were running towards her and showering her with affection and praise and excitement and joy and all that kind of stuff because she, would, and it was all because she was in Mickey. And she was treated as if She were Mickey, and as if she had done everything Mickey had done, right? But to believe and be put in Christ is to be treated as if you had done everything Jesus had done. It's to be united to his every accomplishment and finished work. It's to know that everything he has belongs to you. And that has the power To set us free. I mean, the power to really set us free from guilt and shame to give you confidence that you have an untouchable and unshakable identity. This will fill your life with meaning and purpose and hope and joy. So let's look together at verses seven through ten. I want this morning we're just gonna think about two of the blessings that we see in verses seven through ten. So, one, I want us to see the wonder of redemption that we have in Jesus. And then, second, number two, I, I want us to see the promise of restoration that we have in Jesus. So the wonder of redemption. And the promise of restoration in Jesus. So first, Paul wrote that in Jesus, we have the wonder of redemption. So verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means to deliver by the payment of a price or to deliver by the payment of a ransom. In this culture, it was a term that was often applied to the ransoming of slaves. Um, a slave's freedom could be obtained and secured. He or she could be delivered from bondage with the payment, by the payment of a price or a ransom. It, see, something very unflattering is assumed. When we talk about being redeemed in Christ, and it's just that we need redemption, we need redeeming, right? It's an assumption that we aren't free. It's an assumption that by nature we are enslaved. The author, David Foster Wallace, a brilliant writer, wrote novels like The Infinite Jest, The Pale King, in 2005, he delivered a, a famous speech to the graduating class of Kenyon College uh, called This is Water Is the name of the speech. Um, and Wallace wasn't a Christian, and you may be here this morning and, and not be a Christian. And if that's the case, we're very, very thankful that you're here this morning with us. And uh, and I hope that you would find this to be a safe place and community to examine the claims of Christianity. But it might be that even being... An unbeliever, that you would recognize the same kind of things that, that Wallace recognized. Uh, what Wallace saw was that atheism in academia was one thing, but that it didn't really exist at all in real day to day life. And this is how he put it In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the only choice we get is what to worship. And then he basically said in this speech, this actually makes a good case for worshiping God because, quote, he says, anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he offered several examples. He said, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, what Wallace recognizes was that we all have to live for something. We have to have something that will give our lives meaning. It's inescapable. We have to center our lives on something. There's no such thing as atheism in the day-to-day trenches of life. And you don't have to believe the Bible. Or or be a Christian to even see that. But do you hear what else he was saying? He was saying, whatever you live for, that's your master. And that master will drive us and enslave us. Whatever that master is, it will demand that you die. As he put it, that you die a million deaths to get it. And it's true if you worship money or your body or your intellect or power or if you worship career or or the approval of others or your family or your children or your comfort or your pleasure or being moral and good. But see, when Paul says in Jesus, we have redemption, he assumes we're all enslaved to something. And we are all in need of deliverance. Because anything you worship other than God will eat you alive. Fall short of its standard of beauty or wealth or how your kids should turn out or what it means to be approved of and to not be a disappointment. Or how well you conform to some code of morality. I don't have to tell you this. I mean, and you can forget the theory altogether because we all know this from experience. None of those masters can ever forgive you when you fall short of their standard. They can only drive you into the ground. According to the Bible, there is only one master who won't enslave you. Only one master who will set you free from death and slavery. And that master is God himself because he's the one master who's willing to die for you. And willing to die for your sins. The one master willing to come and pay the price of your redemption. And that price, Paul is telling us, was his blood. It was his life in the place of yours. We've fallen short of his standard. But instead of driving us into the ground and instead of making us die a million deaths, Jesus, God's own son, came to die for us right, and pay the price in his blood to forgive us. And Paul highlights this aspect of our redemption, forgiveness. Redemption, as you read through the Bible, is it, certainly more than this, but it is definitely not less than forgiveness. And I need you to sit with me for a moment and, and just... Wonder at this redemption and this forgiveness that you have, that in Jesus, all your debts are forgiven. The you know, renowned psychiatrist of the 20th century, Carl Meninger, he once said, "If I could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75 percent of them could walk out the next day. to know your sins had been forgiven." has the power to set you free. <clears throat> to be united to Christ to be in Christ to, to, is to be united to him in everything that he has done for you. It's to, the real power of our union with Christ in his death is to know that we are as free from condemnation and guilt and shame as if we as if we had already paid the price. In full for our guilt and for our sin on the cross. And to know that is real freedom. Just think for a moment with me about the stories of David Foster Wallace and the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter. Wallace, two or three years after he gave that speech at Kenyon College, he took his own life. He hanged himself. We don't know what it was. But something he was living for. right? Something he was looking to for meaning in his, in his life. Had eaten him alive. Something had so driven him into the ground that he felt he could no longer face life. The think about Paul. You can read his story in the book of Acts. Here was a guy who had been going around... Imprisoning and overseeing the deaths of Christians before coming to Jesus. He murdered people. Real people with mothers. Right? And fathers and wives and husbands and sisters and brothers. And How do you live with yourself when you've done something like that? How do you show up and worship with people whose family members you had killed? is Paul so free to move forward with such confidence in life, not stuck in shame? The only explanation is that Paul knew he was in Jesus. See, in Romans 8, Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are what." For those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying the possibility of condemnation. It doesn't even exist for you if you are in Jesus. In Jesus you are as free from condemnation. As if you had died on the cross for all of your sins. But you might push back on that. And say but I don't feel forgiven and free. And I get it and Paul gets it. It takes a lifetime to work out all of these blessings we already have in Christ. In the same chapter in Romans, Romans eight fifteen, Paul wrote, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Right? That means it's possible for us to fall back into fear. To fall back into fear and shame and not live in joy, but under a cloud of condemnation. It's possible to be free in Christ, but not living out of that freedom. So what should you do? You need to come up the mountain with Paul. To get a view of what's real. Whether you feel it or not. What do you need to do? You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let let me offer you a little prescription that's been a, a huge help to me. Scottish minister in early 18th century Robert Murray McShane once said, For every look itself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look itself, take ten looks at Christ. That's how you start working out these blessings. You look and you look and you look and you look at Jesus. For every look itself, climb up the mountaintop. And take 10 looks at Jesus in him. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption. In him I'm as free as if I had died on that cross. Now go and live out that freedom. Alright, second. In Jesus, we also have the promise of restoration. Paul wrote in verse 9 that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Just real quick here, that word mystery shows up several times in the book of Ephesians, and we'll talk about it more later. But right now, what you need to know is that the Greek word for mystery is different than the English word. For mystery, because in the Greek it refers to something that was once hidden but that now is fully revealed and displayed um, and, and, and disclosed. And what's been revealed is that God's story is moving towards a mighty crescendo when all of God's creation will be fully restored. Verse 10 Here's what the mystery was, that was revealed a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. He's saying this story is moving towards a goal. It's moving towards a time when everything is going to be brought together under Jesus. Just like we talked about in redemption, the idea that all things are going to once again be united in Jesus, it assumes something. It assumes that life is broken. And that everything is falling apart. Right? And you feel it, don't you? Some of you are more aware of it than others. Because you feel it in your body. You're falling apart. Right? You feel it in your relationships that are so hard and so difficult. Life isn't as it should be. Right? The world as we know it is breaking down in decay and disorder and dish- disharmony. And there is fracture everywhere we look. The war, racism, strained relationships, an insecure economy, disease, poverty, injustice, death, and on and on we could go. Things that should be together in harmony are split apart in disharmony. But Paul is saying in Jesus, you already have this promise that all things will be restored and brought together and under Jesus. At the end of C.S. Lewis' children's book, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, the characters in in those books, they are coming into this this new world. uh, This remade and restored world. And it's like what they knew as the old Narnia. But it was so, so much more. It was so, so much better. And at the end, Lewis wrote this new story goes on forever and ever. And every chapter is better than the one that came before. Always and forever, more beautiful than you can imagine. than what you you could have ever dared dream was true. And Lewis wrote that these characters saw that this Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass just looked like it meant so much more, Lewis wrote. And then comes my favorite line... In all of the books. And it's from this one character who just puts it perfectly. Listen, he burst out and cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. I have come home. To the deeper country. Shalom. The fullness of every joy, love, and satisfaction your heart truly needs and longs for and has been looking for all your life, though you never knew it till now. In Jesus, we have this real hope, this promise that all things will be restored in Jesus. Romans 8 again. All creation is groaning as in the pains of childhood, waiting for this day when the trees of the field will clap their hands, when the mountains themselves will burst forth in song and every wound will be healed and every fracture will be mended and every tear of sorrow will be wiped away forever and ever the Bible wants you to dream about that day and to imagine that promised restoration because it's like like fuel that pulls us forward in life towards that end. It was Lewis, again, who famously wrote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world we're precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world. That they've become so ineffective in this world. It's a vision of this coming promise of restoration. That shapes our lives in the present. To live towards beauty and truth and harmony, and to strive to put an end to all the disharmony of racism and injustice and oppression and poverty, to mend every bit of brokenness we see. Some of you may have seen this recent Saturday Night Live skit uh, about this couple sitting on the couch after Christmas. Uh, My wife showed me this. Um, It was Matt Damon and Cecily Strong, and it's this little parody about how hectic Christmas can be for parents and one of the shots showed Matt Damon up late on Christmas Eve and angrily struggling to put this kid 's playhouse together at one point he just kicks the whole thing and it falls over it 's funny, kind of got to see it but anyway, it reminded me of many Christmas Eves uh, that I've been putting together things, uh, but in particular it reminded me of, of this one uh, Christmas Eve. When I was given the job, of putting together this huge plastic dollhouse. And I remember opening up the big box. I remember seeing the big box and seeing the picture. Oh, it looks awesome. It looks beautiful. It's huge. Whatever. We were opening up the box and dumping all the pieces out. Um, give or take. There were about a million pieces. Um, and I was up all night with that thing. Uh, because even when I got the house itself built, I wanted it to look just like that picture on the front of the box, right? I I wanted to bring that picture into reality. That picture was pulling me forward in a sense. So listen, I stayed up all night, and I hung little tiny baby curtains in the windows, and there were all these decals, these stickers that you had to put everywhere. I put them all, I set the little kitchen table, I set little silverware on that table. I, I did it all. It was up for hours. Why did I stay up all night struggling with that thing? Because I wanted to bring the picture on the front of that box into reality because I wanted my little Caroline to come down those stairs and see it the way it was meant to be. The promise of restoration in Jesus, it is meant to fully engage us in working to bring God's kingdom into reality now. Right, so I'll just ask the question. How and where are we doing this? In our jobs. In our families. In our friendships. In our city. I want to help us dream and imagine what, what could happen to this community if we believe this. Because to know you already have every blessing in Jesus... That you are redeemed in Christ. It frees you to move out into the world. With confidence. In love. Not stuck in shame. To know you have this promise of restoration. It frees you to move out. And to move towards this dream of all things being united under Jesus. The Apostle Paul. Who wrote this letter to the Ephesians. He ministered. In the city of Ephesus for three years. And Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. And in in Ephesus was this incredibly massive and magnificent temple to the goddess Artemis. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was the largest Greek temple in the ancient world. It was four times, four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was huge. And you can read this very interesting story because it's all written down for you in Acts chapter 19. So many people in Ephesus had found their freedom in Jesus that it actually threatened the economy. Of the third largest city in the world at the the time. Because people stopped buying the silversmiths' silver models of the Temple of Artemis. And it actually, this is what you can read, it actually started a riot in the city. And the people of Ephesus flooded into the theater in Ephesus, which held 40,000 people because of what was going on. I'll save the rest of the story for another time. You can read about it. But I stop there because I just want you to catch this dream. That to know a freedom so real and so complete that it moves you out into the world in freedom with love, working to see all things united under Jesus. And it's fascinating to think about the impact of that. The power to change a culture, the power to change a city, one of the largest cities in the world at the time. And so I'm asking the question: what about this place? What about Baton Rouge? Right? Look around you, see what brokenness you can mend in your neighborhood, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your workplace, in this city. Paul wrote, I'm gonna end. Paul wrote in verse one, though we didn't read it this morning. He wrote, to the saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. I just want you to think about this for a moment. It's more than just a greeting. I mean, he was saying, you're in Ephesus, but come up the mountain. You are also in Christ Jesus. And you and I, we are in Baton Rouge. And we are in Jesus. And Paul would say to us, now live out here in Baton Rouge this wonder of redemption and this promise of restoration that you already have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for the Apostle Paul. and I Thank You for the inspiration of the Spirit. How You guided His hand so that He could write these things down for us. In order that we too would be caught up in the wonder that every spiritual blessing is ours in Jesus. In particular this morning, Father, Father, We pray that you would help us to know and understand and sense even the wonder of our redemption. That all our trespasses have been forgiven in Jesus. That we are as free as if we had died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And we thank you as well for this good news. This hope. That is already ours, this promise of restoration, that one day, someday, you will come again, and in that day all the sadness will come untrue, and all the brokenness will be mended. And Father, we pray that even now as we go into this very week, would you open our eyes? to see the brokenness all around us? And would You engage us with this hope of a coming restoration in Jesus in order that we might bring healing, in order that we might bring hope and joy to this place? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.